0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, uh, we'd be glad to hear from you. We can talk about those if you call and ask those questions. Or if you see things differently from the host, uh, you can call about that too. And we'll be glad to talk to you about those things as well. Right now, however, our lines are full. You won't get through if you call right now, but if you call in a few minutes, you might. Here's the number to have and to use. Uh, it's 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. And um, we've got a couple of things that, that have come up this month that are uh, you could uh, <coughs> avail yourself of if you want, because they're either going to be on Zoom or YouTube. I have a debate uh this Friday at 5 p.m. uh Pacific time with a dispensationalist. Now I don't know this gentleman. Uh I was just asked to participate in this and looks like we're covering a lot of different uh, dispensational points, so uh you know I don't I don't know exactly how long it'll go or whatever, but it's going to be either on YouTube or on Zoom and and you'll be able to find out by going to our website. I I just got home from uh Arizona just this morning, and I haven't had time to look at, see what's posted and what's not posted, but if it's not posted yet, it will be posted, and and then uh, on the 24th of this month, which is the next Saturday, I'll be debating uh, our friend Max the Atheist who calls here from time to time, and uh, that's going to be, I believe, on YouTube, and uh, so you might want to mark your calendar for those, one or both of those, uh, this Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, and then... Uh, the following Saturday, I forget what time that is, but it will be posted at our website, thenarrowpath.com, under Announcements. All right, that's all I really have to announce, so let's talk to Ben, who's calling from Atlanta, Georgia. Ben, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling.
1: Thank you, Steve, for taking my call. Um, just want to say I really appreciate your ministry and your online resources. I regularly listen to them in the car while driving, so thank you for that. Great. Uh, Steve, I have a question. Um, Recently, a family member um, who's a male um, shared with us that he is in a relationship with another male, which is a first-time thing for for him. What is your view on what the Bible teaches with regards to homosexuality and its acceptance um, in the Bible? And um, what is your view on – I know some – there are some preachers out there that teach that the bible does say that homosexuality is is acceptable. um but i have not found those verses to be taught right. that way but i want to get your viewpoint on that cuz i know it's it's prevalent today and it's uh it's hitting home for us because it's um a part of our family now.
0: yeah well that's always hard. uh well first of all what the bible indicates is that uh, god created sex to be uh, only used within the grounds of biblical marriage. And, and Jesus defined biblical marriage in Matthew chapter 19, uh, where he said, uh, don't you remember when God created male and female? He said, uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So that's what Jesus defined marriage as. Of course, that's what marriage has always been defined as, uh, until just a couple minutes ago, people all, all understood that marriage is between a man and a woman. That doesn't mean there weren't always people with homosexual uh, drives or uh, temptations or interests uh, or practices. There have always been people who've done that, going back to ancient history, of course. Uh, but but it, wasn't, it wasn't common for them to marry. Uh, marriage was considered to be a very special kind of uh, relationship that God ordained, in the garden, and uh, and that Jesus confirmed, and that's between a man and a woman. So uh, marriage, at least in the Bible, is strictly speaking what we might call traditional marriage. It wasn't, uh, now Jesus wasn't very traditional, but his teaching became the tradition in Western Europe and America because of uh, the influence of Christianity. So what we call traditional marriage between a man and a woman is what Jesus said marriage is, and that's why we have it as our tradition in this part of the world. Um, now, outside of traditional marriage, or outside of marriage, I should say, uh, sexual activity is forbidden in Scripture. And when you have uh, sex outside of that uh, kind of marriage, that's what the Bible calls fornication, or in the Greek it's pornea. Now, fornication just refers to any kind of sexual activity outside of the bounds of Regular marriage, <coughs> and uh, so, for example, incest is referred to as fornication in First uh, Corinthians five one. Um, adultery is referred to as fornication uh, a number of times in the Old Testament when God's talking about how Israel had be, had committed harlotry or fornication, uh, meaning they'd broken their marriage vows to Him. So it's like really adultery. Um, in Luke or excuse me, in Jude. <coughs> Uh, the sexual behavior of the Sodomites is referred to as fornication. So it's obvious that fornication, which is often condemned in Scripture, and in fact the Bible says uh, no fornicator will inherit the kingdom of God, it says that a couple times. Once is in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, and the other place is in Galatians 5, verses uh, 19 through uh, 21, it lists multiple things that says those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And uh, and, and fornication is in both lists. In fact, one of the lists mentions specifically homosexual fornication. But uh, it's very clear that the Bible does not allow any form of fornication. And uh, sex between two unmarried people, uh, whether they're two males or two females, or a male and a female, that's fornication. And uh, and marriage, as as God recognizes it, is only available between a man and a woman. So, unfortunately, for those who really struggle with uh, homosexual desire, there is no biblical legitimate outlet for that sexual expression, <clears throat> and that's that's too bad because the Bible does not condemn people for having a desire. Uh, many times, people don't have a choice about what they desire. Uh, A married man or woman might desire sex with their neighbor's uh, spouse. But that's, you know, having that desire is what we call temptation. And Jesus was tempted, but he didn't sin. And we are, though we will always uh, be subject to temptation, we'll never, we're not supposed to sin. We're not supposed to submit to it. So if a person says, well, I've never been attracted to the opposite sex. I've always been attracted to same sex. Uh, Well, that person's in a situation... Uh, perhaps like a rather unmarriageable uh, straight person. I mean, there are straight people who'd like to marry, but they just don't have anyone uh, you know, wanting to marry them, or they're not meeting anyone that they want to marry. Uh, they're not homosexual. They, they could conceivably marry, but it's just not happening for them. There's lots of people in that situation. And the Christian uh, teaching is uh, celibacy. Celibacy unless you are in a marriage. Now, I'm not saying that's easy. And a person who's not a Christian, of course, would not be expected to necessarily live by Christian convictions. But if this family member of yours is a Christian, then they are involved in something that the Bible says will keep them from inheriting the kingdom of God, which is something obviously disastrous. Now, you said that you know some Christians who say that the Bible says it's okay. Actually, I've read, uh, you know, articles and books and things by people, who say that the Bible allows for homosexuality, uh, they actually don't have any scriptures that say it's okay. What they do is spend their time trying to debunk the scriptures that say it's not okay. They try to say, well, the homosexuality that's condemned in scripture is not really two consenting adults in a loving monogamous relationship. What they, they say, what scripture's condemning is the exploitative uh, sexual practices of the Roman Empire, where men would uh, have relationships with boys, which is more like <coughs> child molestation and so forth. And that's mm-hmm. so they say that's what the Bible is condemning. However, that's not true. I mean, they they go into long discussions about the Greek words that are used in Romans chapter one and in uh, 1 <coughs> Corinthians six, and try to point out that these do not refer to regular homosexual activities, but but sexual morality. For the Jews, and Jesus was a Jew, was defined by the sexual morality that, that God revealed in the law of Moses. And in the law of Moses, in Leviticus 18.22, it says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now notice, it's addressing males in this case. Do not lie, don't sleep with, don't have sex with, is what's implied, with a, a, another male. He doesn't say boy, just another male. In fact, he refers to it as being having the same kind of sex with a male that you would normally have with a woman. I don't think it was okay to exploit women either. So we're not talking about exploitative sex. We're talking about homosexual sex rather than heterosexual sex. And there's just no, no honest way around this. There's plenty of Christian churches that are trying to make nice to the culture Uh, and to uh, kind of follow the worldly culture in saying, well, you know, the church has been wrong about this all this time. But the church hasn't been wrong in condemning fornication. Uh, If anything, the church has been wrong in not condemning fornication enough. It may be true that the church has historically condemned homosexual fornication, but in America, many churches that consider themselves Christians have been very tolerant of heterosexual fornication, which is equally bad. I mean, fornication is fornication. I don't blame a homosexual person for having homosexual desires. I don't think badly of them for that. And I don't feel badly for a single straight guy or straight girl who has sexual desires toward the opposite sex. That's, the, that's, that's something that we don't necessarily choose. That's something that we're strapped with as a. it defines where our struggle is. It defines where our temptations are. And for, even for a straight couple who can't get married... They've got the same burden that a homosexual couple would have. They can't have sex together. Um, And there's a lot of Christians throughout history who've just been celibate. In fact, I myself spent many, many of my adult years unmarried, uh, not because I wanted to. Uh, You know, I I had a a wife who divorced me, and I was single for 10 years, uh, raising my kids as a single dad before I remarried. But... um, during those 10 years, I, I can't say it was you know, the easiest thing in the world to be celibate. It was not. But it was mandatory. And if I had never remarried, which was seemed to me a very real possibility through those years, that maybe I will never remarry, I was looking at the possibility of not ever uh, being other than celibate. It's not a happy idea, but it's a, it's something that many, many people, Christians and non-Christians, have had to face. So... The Bible is against all fornication, and uh, all homosexual sex is fornication because it's impossible for that to be within the grounds of biblical marriage. So, unfortunately, I, I mean, I'm, very, I'm extremely sympathetic. Uh, I've never had homosexual desires, but I've been single and heterosexual, and I understand how hard it is for people to, you know, just kind of define their life as a sexless life. But some people are in that position. Jesus said, you know, I don't think he was talking about gay people, but he was, Jesus said, some men are made eunuchs from the womb, and some are made eunuchs by by man, and some make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Uh, He that can receive it, let him receive it. Uh, So, you know, this is something that is hard. Christianity calls us to sometimes uh, things that are difficult, but if they're difficult, they're worth it. God is not cruel. God loves us and God wants us to be satisfied but it may be that the deprivation of one kind of satisfaction he intends to make up for in another kind that comes with obedience uh, so those are those are my thoughts on the subject uh, and those, as I understand it, that's what the Bible teaches on the subject
1: Steve that really helps thank you so much for your insight um, you have a really good great gift of teaching and thank you for Using your gift to, to bless our lives.
0: Well, I appreciate your call, and I'm very sorry for what your family's going through. Thank you, Steve. Goodbye. God bless you. Bye now. Uh, David from Camarillo, California, welcome to the Narrow Path.
2: Hey, Steve, how's everything?
0: Well, some things are great, some things maybe not so great, but no complaints.
2: Every day above ground is a good day, right?
0: Not necessarily, but yeah, it's, I'm not complaining. Things are fine for me.
2: Hey, the reason I'm calling is I wanted to ask a question about your ministry. It's called The Narrow Path. But, yes. Yeah, but that narrow path seems to include doctrines that are shared not just amongst Christians, but the entire world. Like what? And what I mean... Well, the Trinity doctrine would be one. No, but, 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 tr-
0: wait, wait, wait. wait! Trinity doctrine is not shared by the whole world. Most Trinity. religions don't believe in the... No, most, most religions don't believe in the Trinity. What are you talking about?
2: Well, the Egyptians, the Samaritans, all of no. these... Okay, listen, uh, the Jews,
0: wait, the Jews, the Muslims, the uh, Buddhists, the Hindus... They do not believe in the truth. So okay, so I don't agree with you. Go ahead with your question. What is your question?
2: Well, that's not true though. In the, I'm sorry, in I'm that sorry. That if
0: you're gonna to lie to me, I'm gonna hang up, but just go on with your question. I'm not you, have, lying to
2: you. you were setting up you I'm were setting
0: lying. up a question. Go ahead.
2: Well, for example, in India they believe in Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva
0: and a thousand right. other gods and a thousand other gods that's not trinity yeah but
2: those are the main those are the main gods in egypt
0: okay listen do you want to that's ask me a egypt. question or do you not no, do you not want to, david you call me to to challenge the trinity a lot okay uh, of you're course not impressive with your your arguments are not true nor impressive but i'm interested in what your question is cuz i'd like to answer it if i can what is your question well
2: my 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 question is is how is your ministry on the narrow path when it teaches a doctrine that is shared by ninety percent of Christians in the world? That doesn't seem very uh narrow path minded to me
0: really you know more than ninety percent of the Christians in the world more than ninety percent of the Christians in the world believe Jesus is Lord and is the Son of God, and I teach that too. I also teach thou shalt not kill, that is, you should not murder, and that's taught by most, most people in the world, even non-Christians. Yeah, Christian truth uh, is, some of it, is shared by non-Christians. But uh, you're concerned because you're a Seventh-day Adventist, or maybe you're not anymore, but you, you certainly are not. Uh, you have been a Seventh-day Adventist or have argued like one before. Um, you, uh, you know, you object to certain doctrines. And because you are in a tiny, tiny minority of those who call themselves Christians, and you don't accept, for example, the Trinity (coughs) and several other Christian doctrines, um, you know, you think, well, I I must be right because there's so few people who agree with me. I would be more inclined to say uh, the more people who agree who are Christians, uh, the more secure I am in in the fact that it's true. But I don't. I don't decide that it's true because most Christians believe it. Because I, I have in fact embraced some doctrines that most of the Christians around me did not embrace. I don't. I don't choose my doctrines by how many people embrace them. But uh, I, I choose them from Scripture. Now, as I read the Scripture, uh, and I'm not reading them through a cultic lens, and I think maybe you are. But as I read the Scripture, I see it p- what most Christians see, and that is that God is a Trinity. Now you know we disagree about that obviously but you were um, you were saying you know that 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 seems inconsistent in calling uh this program the narrow path i think what you're suggesting is uh it it's suggesting the path is a narrow path like jesus said but why am i so uh broad minded as to accept the trinity doctrine well i don't know that that's broad minded that's just following scripture but in any case i will say this i am somewhat broad minded about some theological points that I think are not as clear in Scripture as they might be. And there are a number of doctrines that I have sometimes said, you know, I don't care if people agree with me on that doctrine or not. But that's, that's, those are doctrines that have nothing to do with walking on the path. You see, the path is Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way. You know, if you're walking with Jesus, if, you, if he's your Lord and you're obedient to him, that's the path. And it's a narrow path because it's uh, there's a lot more ways to be disobedient than there are to be obedient. But uh, the path, in my opinion, is not depi- not defined by the uh, esoteric theological constructs. Uh, in other words, I'm a Trinitarian. I've always been a Trinitarian. I suppose I'll always be one. But I don't I don't judge whether a person is following Jesus by whether they understand the Trinity the same way I do. If they if they're denying Scripture, and therefore they're denying the Trinity because they don't, even though they see the Scripture teaches it, then I don't think they're honest Christians or following Jesus at all. If, on the other hand, they're searching the Scriptures, honestly trying to understand it, they, they just can't get over the hurdle of believing in the Trinity, well, I believe such people might, might still follow Jesus. And uh, nowhere does the Bible say that people will be saved because they believed in the Trinity, or because they disbelieve the Trinity. In fact, the Trinity is never even really mentioned as a doctrine in the Scriptures, so it would be a very strange thing to think people are saved or unsaved by their opinion about a doctrine that the Bible never explains anywhere. Uh, it's, it's following Jesus. But if you do follow Jesus, he is the truth, and he wants us to be zealous for truth. He wants us to you know search the Scriptures and understand the truth, and I believe that when that is done without prejudices, that it leads to a Trinitarian doctrine since it hasn't led you to that uh, I'm going to either have to assume that maybe you haven't searched the scriptures honestly or maybe you have and you're just not as uh, perhaps as uh, adept at synthesizing what the Bible says about things but I appreciate your call I know I've heard from you hundreds of times Uh, we'll talk again sometime let's talk to Melinda in Hawaii Melinda welcome
3: oh thank you Steve I appreciate your time I have two questions, if possible. The first has to do with Matthew 23, starting in verse 13. Um, Basically, Jesus is um, uh, pronouncing woes on the Pharisees. My question relates uh, primarily to verses 34 and 35. Um, Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And it goes on. My question is why the blood of um, Abel is included in the Pharisees guilt.
0: Yeah, I think that, I think Jesus is coming from a worldview that there's, there's kind of two kinds of people. There's the kind of people who are on God's side, and there's the kind of people who are against God. And the people who are against God have often been known to kill God's prophets and so forth, Cain being the first, Cain being the first to do so, and that Jerusalem was aligning itself with the, with the dark side here. I mean, Cain was not a Jew, obviously. He never heard the word Jerusalem. It didn't exist in his day. And he killed Abel. But Cain was the first uh, one to exhibit this murderous uh, rebellion against God, uh, against the righteous. And as such, you know, he's the first of a class which has been included very many people. But it shouldn't have included the people of Jerusalem because they had a covenant with God and they had God's word and things like that. But they, they kind of joined right in with that spirit and they they kind of their solidarity it's interesting, it's ironic really because the jews saw themselves as distinct from the gentiles because they were circumcised or because they kept you know dietary laws and special days and so forth but jesus is saying actually you're much more like the gentiles you actually are aligned with the haters of god and he actually he mentions they're going to they're going to kill him too they killed the prophets and they they'll kill him too uh, you know abel was the first one of god's prophets to suffer uh, martyrdom, and uh, and there's been more. And the Jews, uh, you know, they contributed a large number to that. They killed their prophets in many cases. Obviously, they killed, uh, you know, Stephen eventually. They killed Jesus. Um, one could argue that they killed John the Baptist, though that was Herod that did that, but he was the king of the Jews at the time. So, uh-huh. um, you know, it's like he's just saying, you guys you you're, you're uh, all the all the guilt of all the the innocent blood that was shed from the time of Abel on. Uh, that, that's all that's that's on you. I mean, on you and others mm-hmm. like you, I, I think he would say. Uh, but he said oh, it's then... going to come on. I, it's going to come on this generation, which by which I think he's referring to the fact that uh, they're going to cash in their chips on this before that generation ends. Because he told them that uh, in the next chapter that within that generation, the temple was going to be destroyed and the Jews would be scattered uh-huh. and so forth. And they were. I mean, this happened in that generation. This was the judgment uh, on Israel for their years and years of rejecting the prophets and, of course, uh, you know, the Messiah and, and the apostles that, that they killed and persecuted. So, um, you know, that's what I think he's saying. I don't think he's, mm-hmm. I don't think he's arguing that everyone who was not Jewish who killed a righteous man for example, Cain was not Jewish and killed a righteous man, and there were others. There were pagans that killed righteous men. Some of some of the Christians, of course, after the time Jerusalem was destroyed, were killed by Romans. Uh, you know, and, and martyrs martyrs have not all met their death at the hands of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem had fairly consistently uh, joined that company of those that kill the prophets, and they were going to they're going to get their punishment for it before that generation was over. He said.
3: Oh, that's very helpful, Steve. Thank you. Uh, do you have a moment for yet another question?
0: Sure. Well, maybe okay. maybe not. I only have about a minute, but I could hold you over if we need to. What's the okay. second question? Okay,
3: thank you. Uh, the question relates to Luke 16. The first half is dealing with the unrighteous manager parable. Um, mm-hmm. And then it, uh, in verse 18, there's one curious um, verse, and that's everyone who divorces his wife. Marries another commits adultery. Then it goes right into the rich man and Lazarus. My question is, is there a segue? Is 18 there to, uh, am I missing something? Or is it just like stuck in there?
0: You know, I don't think I have to hold it over. that That is sort of a verse seemingly out of place. Luke has Jesus' teachings arranged like that sometimes. Sometimes he's got Jesus talking about several different subjects briefly in a row. Uh, whereas Matthew arranges the teachings of Jesus more topically, typically. Typically, topically. And, uh, so that just <laughs> seems to be, a, a one-off there, I've always thought. Okay, it thanks. does seem a little out of place. Uh, but no, I, just I think he did, just.
3: didn't want to make, I yeah, wanted to make sure I wasn't missing yeah. something and it related, I, but, uh, I don't think it's, I, a, I, I don't need...
0: think it's a segue. I don't think it's a segue at all. Hey, I appreciate that. I've got to take a break right now. We have another half hour coming up, so don't go away. Our website is thenarrowpath.com. I'll be back in 30 seconds.
3: Small is the gate and narrow is the path that leads to life. Welcome to The Narrow Path with Steve Gregg. Steve has nothing to sell you but everything to give you. When today's radio show is over, we invite you to study, learn, and enjoy by visiting thenarrowpath.com where you'll find free topical audio teachings, blog articles, verse-by-verse teachings, and archives of all the Narrow Path radio shows. We thank you for supporting the listener-supported Narrow Path with Steve Gregg. Remember, thenarrowpath.com.
0: Welcome back to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for another half hour taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, we'll be glad to discuss those with you. If you disagree with the host, we'll be glad to discuss that with you, too. Uh, The number to call, although our lines appear to be full again, you can call in a few minutes. There may be a line opening up. The number is 844 484 Thirty-seven, and our next caller today is Jacob from Portland, Oregon. Hi, Jacob.
4: Hi, Steve. I um, so I was raised uh, to to understand Proverbs four eighteen, where it talks about the the path of the righteous getting brighter. Um, mm-hmm. The organization that I was a part of used that scripture to say that essentially um, as spiritual things got, um, as there was more understanding uh, as time went on, that this that the leaders were needed to um, help us understand that light, and that's how it would get brighter. And then they also used it to say that when their predictions and or prophetic statements failed to, uh, to transpire, then they use it to say, well, the, the light just, there wasn't time, uh, the light wasn't bright enough yet <laughs> as an excuse for when they fail. Uh, what's your understanding of that scripture?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, obviously the group you talk about was a bit cultic, it would seem, and not very honest in their use of scripture. But uh, it, it does say the light of the path, or excuse me, the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines brighter and brighter until perfect day. Or uh, New American Center, I think, says till full day. The path of the just or the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until uh, the per- full day. So the idea is that as the righteous move forward, um, the light becomes brighter until the the day dawns. Now, this can be taken in an individual sense, in the sense that if you're a righteous person and you're walking with God, you'll get more and more light. Uh, you know, eventually you'll understand more and more things. There's no suggestion here about your leaders. You know, you have to, you know, the leaders have to give it to you. Um, but. But good leaders hopefully will. I mean, obviously, if you have good pastors and teachers who are growing in their understanding, well, then, as they teach, it will probably help the congregation grow in their understanding, too. But it also could be possibly taken collectively, and that might be how your teachers were teaching it. I kind of lean that way myself, though it's hard to be dogmatic, because the path of the righteous, well, the righteous could be a righteous man or the righteous people, uh, and it does say the path of the righteous grows brighter and brighter until the full day. Now, the interesting thing about the reference to a sunrise and the full day is that Peter uses language like that in Second Peter chapter one, and I think it's verse nineteen. He says that you do well to pay heed to the scriptures as unto a light. Uh, shining in darkness until the the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, which sounds kind of similar, you know, sounds similar to that. You know, until the day dawns, you, uh, we Christians are, you know, the, the scriptures are guiding us in this dark time until the time that the day dawns. Now, I consider the day dawning being Jesus coming back. I believe that the coming of Christ in a, in a number of places in scripture is likened to a sunrise. And, uh, so that's what I assume is taking place. But Peter does talk about the day star rising in your hearts. Now, the day star usually refers to the planet Venus. Uh, and I think any commentary will mention that Venus was called the morning star, or the day star. Of course, Venus doesn't have any light of its own, but it does reflect the sun's light, uh, and it's very bright. And so, at the dawning of the day, uh, just as the you know as the sun is about to come up, the morning star is also brightly shining there, and uh, if if the righteous would be collectively, say, maybe the church, uh, that our path is growing brighter and brighter until uh, Jesus comes back, then it would suggest that the glory of the Lord that's rising upon us, remember it says in um, Isaiah 60, you know, darkness will cover the earth and gross darkness the people, but his light shall rise upon you, and he'll be seen upon you, and and the Gentiles be drawn to the light of your rising. That's the early verses of Isaiah 60 say that. There's a lot of suggestions, uh, imagery of sunrises uh, related to, I think, the second coming of Christ in the Bible. Um, and it, it does sound like it's saying that the church or the people of God are, uh, will become uh, brighter, the glory of the Lord, the image of Christ will be Upon them greater it says in second uh, Corinthians three eighteen that we all with open face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, glory would be like the radiance of the Lord, are changed from glory to glory into that same image, so even as by the spirit of the Lord it says so I mean there is a change taking place in the people of God to become more and more like Jesus and that and becoming like Jesus is the glory that's the hope of glory is to be like Jesus and uh, so in the in the working of the Holy Spirit in His people, the suggestion seems to be that as time goes on, the the people who are followers of Christ and have Christ in them will become more and more like Him, and uh, and they will be seen as such. The glory of the Lord will be seen on them more and more until Jesus Himself, you know, pops over the horizon like the sun at sunrise. Um, there are certainly there's nothing to compel anyone to believe that my Interpretation of that is 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 necessarily true, but that's how I've come to see it, as I try to piece things together scripturally, and um, so I've 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 always seen this verse uh, Proverbs four eighteen as being like that. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter till the, f- the full day. Um, you know, P- Jesus told a parable in Mark four about a man who sowed seeds in the field. He said the kingdom of God is like a man who sowed seeds in his field, and he slept and he woke. And it didn't matter whether he was awake or asleep, the seed grew by itself. He said the, the, the ground produced it, uh, and the seed grew, which is the, he said is the kingdom of God. And he said at first the blade, and then the head of grain on the stalk. He's talking about a wheat stalk here. And then the mature grain in the head. And then he said, and when the, mat- the grain is mature, then he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So Jesus planted the kingdom, when he was here, and it's been growing. He also compared it to a mustard seed growing, uh, very large. And in its growth, in that parable in Mark 4, he suggests the growth is not just in size and, and reach, but in maturity. And, you know, the the grains in the head of, on the stock are maturing. And when, and when they're ripe, when they're mature, that's when he puts in the sickle. He says, because the harvest has come. So I, my eschatology does suggest that the church, not the world, but the church, is going to become more and more like Christ, even if the world becomes darker and darker. And that, uh, you know, his his goal is that his glory will be seen upon us, uh, and his likeness. So, uh, you know, that may be reading too much into this one verse in Proverbs, but these other verses, mostly from the New Testament, uh, I believe uh, would perhaps justify uh, its inclusion here. Now, the You know, when you say your teachers used to use this verse, kind of in that way, it sounds like. Um, But they said that this is about the teachers. You know, the teachers are going to bring the church forward. Well, maybe they will, maybe they won't. Uh, You know, Jesus didn't mention that. The proverb doesn't mention that. So I I don't know that, you know, it sounds like something teachers might teach in order to give themselves somewhat more prestige. Yeah, it's uh, it's their group, huh? Yeah, I didn't know they taught that particular thing. And I've talked to a lot of JWs, but I didn't know they taught. We've never gotten on that subject. But, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, but they're false prophecies, right. So they, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses made a lot of false prophecies in the early 20th century. And and for them to say, oh, well, you know, the, the light wasn't bright enough yet or something. you know, uh, but, yeah. That's obviously a, an excuse. That's nothing but an excuse for being wrong. All
4: right, thank
0: you. Okay, Jacob, good talking to you, man. Uh, Dan from Green Bay, Wisconsin, welcome to the narrow path. thanks for calling
5: hi Steve um, hi. relatively new listener here. I think I discovered you about two months ago and I've been uh binging on the radio archives ever since and loving it
0: oh great I'm glad that's that's uh, meaningful to you. go ahead,
5: yeah so I was reading the Bible this morning I came across a verse in Matthew 7 that piqued my curiosity, and I didn't really have a full understanding, and I was wondering if maybe you could elaborate on it. um uh, seven twenty eight it says, And so it was, when Jesus had ended these things, that the people were astonished at his teaching. And then 29 really piqued my interest. For or because... He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You know, I'm not wondering, you know, well, how did the scribes teach and how did, did that contrast sure. with Jesus' teaching?
0: Sure. Well, uh, teaching with authority or teaching like you have authority means you you're teaching like you know what you're talking about and that you have the authority to be heard and believed in um, others, like, like you're an expert. To, if someone teaches as if he has authority, he's presenting himself as if he's an expert. Now, not everyone who teaches as if they have authority does have authority. There are people who, of course, uh, are faking it. They they, they they want you to think they have authority, and they talk like they do have authority, but in many cases they don't. But Jesus, of course, did. Jesus spoke very much unlike the scribes. Now, how did the scribes speak? Uh, we, You know... The Jewish teachers, the scribes, they did not value originality. Very different from many Christian teachers. Many Christian teachers almost want to make a reputation for themselves by saying things that no one else has ever said. You know, they want to be viewed as original thinkers and so forth like that. Uh, not, all, not all Christian teachers do, but there's plenty of them that are. And some of them end up leading cults. But I'm not saying that everyone who tells you something you haven't heard before is leading a cult, but that sometimes that happens. But the... The, the Jewish teachers did not want to come off sounding original. They, they, they rooted all their teachings, and, and they taught, of course, on the Sabbath in the synagogues. Uh, they would say, Rabbi so-and-so understands the scripture this way, uh, and Rabbi so-and-so, another rabbi, sees it this way. Uh, it would be very common, for example, for uh, a, rabbi, uh, 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 yeah, a rabbi teaching in the synagogue to uh, root his authority in a previous rabbi who was respected. Uh, especially Rabbi Shammai or Rabbi Hillel, both of those were very prestigious rabbis in the generation before Christ. And, you know, quoting the rabbis as the as the rabbis are giving their interpretation of Scripture uh, was something that, you know, the, the person who's quoting these famous rabbis is giving the impression that he's in the lineage of, uh, you know, brilliant men from the past and in no sense wanting to sound original. Now, Jesus wasn't necessarily trying to sound original, but he was pretty original. And he'd say to them, like in chapter 5, two chapters earlier, he said, you've heard that it was said, and then he'll quote something from the Old Testament, but then say, but I say to you, this is how you understand it. Now, that was very different than the rabbis would do it. The the rabbis, again, did not have any real confidence that they themselves Uh, would give the authoritative interpretation, and they didn't speak as if they had any authority. But they would always uh, appeal to other more famous rabbis and say, this is what he said. And and, uh, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't attempt to do that. In fact, uh, if he did appeal to what had been said previously, he often disagreed with it and said, no, that's not right. For example, in Matthew 5, he said, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Now, the Old Testament does say, it does say you shall love your neighbor, but it nowhere says you shall hate your enemies. That was what rabbis before had taught. Apparently, some of the famous rabbis had said, well, yeah, you have to love your, your neighbor, but your enemies, you've you got to hate those. And Jesus said, well, you've heard that it said you shall love your uh, neighbor and hate your enemies, but I say that's wrong. I say love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. So, you know, And so Jesus was not trying to show his continuity with previous rabbinic authorities, uh, like, the, like the scribes did. He was just speaking as if he knew, speaking as if he's the one who knows what he's talking about, and, uh, and that believing him was the only sensible thing to do. That, I mean, that's the kind of um, way he presented himself. And, of course, we who are Christians say, and he, he did have all authority. He, you know, he, he was more authoritative than the rabbis. But the people who were hearing him for the first time, They didn't know who he was, and it shocked them. They were sort of, how dare he talk that way? They were astonished by it. You know, over in Mark, it tells, uh, there's another story about Jesus in a synagogue, in that case, because what you just quoted is from the Sermon on the Mount, out on the hillside. But there is a a story from the uh, synagogue in Mark chapter 1, and it says in verse 21, Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue, and it says they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not like the scribes. The very same thing that Matthew said about the sermon on the mount. They had the same reaction. Whoa, what's up with this guy? He's talking like he like he knows. And it says now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, "Let us alone!" Blah blah blah. Then Jesus said, uh, Jesus rebuked him and saying, "Be quiet and come out of him." And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice and came out of him, it says then they were all amazed. So that they question among themselves, saying, what is this? What new teaching is this? For with authority, he commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. Now, notice that when they first heard him speak, they said, this is strange. He's speaking as if he has authority. They're not necessarily committed to believing that he has authority. They're they're just surprised that he talks that way. But then he casts a demon out and they say, whoa, he does have authority. He, he, He commands the demons and they obey him. He is authoritative, you know. So it's one thing for a person to speak as if he has authority. Lots of people on the radio, lots of preachers, they speak as if they have authority. Um, uh, I I suppose we all do in some measure. But just because a man speaks as if he has authority, it doesn't necessarily mean he does. But Jesus surprised them by talking that way. And then he surprised them by proving that he had authority by, for example, casting a demon out in a case like that. So that's how I... That's how I would expound on that latter yes, that last verse, in Matthew seven.
5: And okay. you know, when I read that, it came came to my mind too. Like in, in the Book of Acts, there's are similar situations. For example, when Peter or John and John are before the Sanhedrin, you know, and they were they were amazed by the boldness that they spoke yeah. with. And, and right. also Paul, Paul when he was before King Agrippa, you know, he. King of says, you almost persuade me. You almost me.
0: persuade me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, brother, okay. well, thank you for your call. Thank you. Bye. You have a great evening. Bye now. Oh, Let's see here. Next caller is John from Fort Worth, Texas. Hi, John. Welcome.
6: Hello, uh, how are you today? Fine, thanks. I just wanted to ask you, I wanted to thank you for uh, correcting me a few weeks ago. Because a friend of mine had asked me if I thought Jesus was created. And then I went in here and looked in the Bible and said, I told him I didn't really know. But, uh, in Genesis it says, uh, what, uh, chapter, I think, I'm sorry, uh, 9, uh, 19, 18. I'm sorry. It says, uh, we were created in our, our, our we created man
0: in our image. Are you talking, you must be talking about Genesis one twenty six. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to find. Yes, sir.
6: Exactly. 1.26. It said, we created man in our own image. So, so I'm Jesus sorry. What, been, he, so yes, Jesus. he was already created. He was already here from the start.
0: Well, yeah, he he you was understand? not created. He was not created. He existed forever.
6: It, exactly. It, it, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Um, right. Yeah, I just wanted to thank you for correcting me on that. Okay. And I want to ask you
0: Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say uh, it says in Micah five two about the Messiah that his going forth is for from of old even from everlasting, you know. So his origins go way back to eternity, uh, not from not particular time. But did you have another question?
6: Oh yes, I want to ask you about uh, Noah and his sons. Okay. And it says that I want to know why uh, uh, Canaan was. uh,
0: why he was cursed? Yeah, he was cursed. Okay, well, let me, let me get into that for you, because we're running out of time. Um, at the, after the flood, Noah uh, planted a vineyard, and uh, apparently at the first vintage time he drank uh, too much and got drunk, was passed out in his bed without any clothes on. Of course, he was in his own tent, so he wasn't out, you know, out in public that way. But uh, one of his sons, Ham... Happened to walk into the tent, not knowing this, and seeing his father like that. Instead of covering him up, he went out and gossiped about him. Told the brothers, "Hey, you know, you should see the old man. There, you know, he's he's drunk, passed out, and naked." And the and the two brothers didn't think that was humorous. They they actually wanted to honor their father more, so they put a garment over their shoulders, walked into the tent backwards so they wouldn't see him. They knew where his bed was, so they went to where he was, no doubt, lying and dropped the. Garment over him and left the tent, uh, so that they could, you know, cover him up as they knew he'd prefer that he be. Anyway, when Noah woke up, it says he cursed Ham's son Canaan. Now some people, uh, well, some people say why was why was Ham or, or you know punished? Ham wasn't punished. Canaan was pronounced to become a slave of the, of the people of Shem. Actually, what Noah did is he just gave a prophecy about Canaan, that Canaan would be the servant to his brothers, and, uh, and, and this actually happened. See, Ham's son Canaan gave rise to the, the seven Canaanite nations, and, uh, and they did become uh, enslaved to the Shemites, who were the Jews in this case. So it's just a prophecy about what would happen to Canaan. Now, it doesn't say that this would happen to Canaan because of what Ham did, uh, it is true that it was on the occasion of Ham doing this that Noah gave this prophecy, but he's not saying that because Ham did this, his son is going to be punished. It's rather that it was simply a fact that the Canaanites would come under the under the yoke to Israel, and this became an opportune time to to uh, to predict that uh, because Ham obviously had shown himself to be uh, a lesser man. Than his brothers and the, and his sons' descendants, Canaanites, would be definitely morally lesser than the Shemites and and would come under their rule, and the, and that did happen. So I, I see the curse not so much as, oh, because Ham did this, I'm going to punish his son Canaan. Uh, I think it's just that, that that occasioned the prophecy to be made, which was a a prophecy that was going to come true regardless. I don't think that this. I don't think the Canaanites became as they did. Or came under judgment because of what Ham did. I think it's just something that was going to happen, and and it, and so Noah used the opportunity to prophesy about it. While on an occasion where their their dad, you know, proved to be, you know, kind of a jerk himself. Anyway, that's how I would understand the connection there. Uh, let's see. Let's talk next to Randy in Northern California. Randy, welcome. Randy, if you're not there, I'm going to take someone else he's not there. Let's talk to uh, Jennifer in Dallas, Texas. Jennifer, welcome.
7: Well, hello, Steve. Hi. I uh, am another one of your listeners. We were so happy when you finally made it to Dallas, and it was a great, great session that we had here in Dallas. Hope you come back soon. My question oh, is: Are you
0: when I met? Are you when I met there?
7: I'm the one that met. Yes.
0: Yeah, I think yes. I, I I met you there. Yes. Okay. Good yes,
7: oh, we had a great session, so come again. Right. Uh, my question, my question is, I'm gonna ask it and then, uh, comment and then I'll hang up and listen off right. air. But my question is, uh, is there something else that I'm supposed to be doing and what else is it that I can do? And I'm talking in reference to, I know things that happen to me are that the heavenly father did it he blesses me and i know it was him and i witness for him and i'm grateful and i'm thankful and i praise and lift him up and let people know that it's because god did this but i feel like there's more than that that i can do but i don't know so that's my question what else can yeah. i is there, okay
3: well i'll tell you I there's uh,
0: okay okay thanks for your call um well, I honestly don't know what else you can do because I don't know what you're doing now. You mentioned you, you praise him and you glorify him, and that sounds like what you should do. Uh, you know, Paul said, uh, whatever you do, in word or deed, uh, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving glory to God by him. In Colossians chapter uh, 3, he said that. I think it's verse 17. He also said in First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, at, I think it's verse 31, uh, Paul said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. In other words, everything you do is to be done to the glory of God. And I don't know what you do in a given day or what your job is or what your connections are, or what ministry you might be in. I, I honestly, I, I mean, although I guess we met, I don't, I don't know you, so I don't know what you do with your time. All I can say is whatever you do, do it consciously as a service to God and to and to his people. And he'll be happy with it. And uh, as far as what you ought to do specifically day by day, uh, probably you'd be better better off asking somebody who knows you and knows what your, you know, what your gifts are, what your strengths are, what kind of activities you're already involved in, what other activities you might be qualified for. I, I mean, every person, the answer would be different for every person. But whatever you do, uh, do it for the glory of God. And that's the main thing uh, that I could say to you, not knowing any more than I do. I appreciate your zeal, though, and your love for God. A junior in Virginia. I'm sorry we don't have more time than we do, but go ahead. Hey, brother, uh, good to hear from you. Um, I'll be quick. Maybe I'll
1: answer the question to be short. Um, It's based off the email I sent you about Jesus drinking wine. If
2: you didn't read it, I could just give a quick question about it.
0: Uh, Go ahead.
2: It's been a while, hasn't it? Yes. I sent the email, I think, uh, two days
0: ago. Um, Oh, I I have not seen it. I've not seen it. But go ahead. So the question is,
1: um, I was debating with a friend of mine, and he said that Jesus did not drink wine. And I'm saying Jesus did drink wine, and he used a verse from Proverbs um, saying that... um, Do not look at the wine while
0: it is red. Yes, correct,
4: correct, correct, yeah.
0: I
1: yeah. uh, just want to know your thoughts. So maybe I could call again. Maybe you could give me a more elaborate response.
0: Yeah, the music just started playing, and we're, we're off in 60 seconds. <laughs> First of all, the Bible says that Jesus not only drank wine, he made wine. And the word for wine is the same wine uh, that it says in Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine. And it's the same wine they had at communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where some people drank too much and went home drunk. So, I mean, if anyone wants to tell you the wine back then wasn't fermented, then, uh, then they just don't know what they're talking about. And Jesus, of course, had Passover with his disciples, and wine was a very typical part of it. You know, everyone drank wine because the the water was bad. They had to mix wine with their water to make it safe to drink. Anyway, that's a really short answer. I'd be off in fifteen seconds. But call again tomorrow, maybe we can talk about this more at length. You've been listening to the Narrow Path. We are uh, listener supported. You can find out how to help us, or just take stuff from our website, which is thenarrowpath.com. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk again tomorrow.